If you tell me your first 5x cities that you had, I can tell you 20 years into the future how much your work will actually be selling. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Ask fans of crypto and NFTs why they think the blockchain is such a revolutionary technology, and it probably won't be long before they mention large-scale data transparency, a concept near and dear to our own hearts here at Artnet. Since the blockchain permanently and publicly documents key information about every transaction it holds, then people with the right know-how and technical resources could theoretically map the entire history of any given crypto platform or project, and the wild, woolly market for NFTs is no exception. That's where Laszlo Barabashi comes in. Laszlo is the founder and leader of Barabashi Lab, a team of artists and data scientists that study complex networks. Just a few weeks ago, he and his co-authors published a fascinating data-rich analysis of the NFT platform Foundation. Launched in February 2021, Foundation has now hosted some of the most significant NFT sales to date, including the $5.4 million crypto art debut of era-defining whistleblower Edward Snowden. Based on Laszlo's study, our resident NFT sage, art business editor Tim Schneider, put together a data-driven guide on how to succeed as a crypto artist, which Artnet News Pro subscribers can read online now. For this episode, Tim spoke with Laszlo about the inner workings of Foundation, the synthesis of art and science, and much more. Take a listen. Laszlo Barabashi, thanks for joining us on The Art Angle. It's my pleasure, Tim. Great talking to you. Same. So we're mainly here today to talk about your research into Foundation, which has all kinds of really fascinating insights into the market structure of the platform and how artists can succeed on it. But before we get into that, can you just tell me a little bit about your background? Like what led you to data science and data visualization in the first place? So most people know me as a network scientist. It's an area of science that I helped create about 20 years ago that tries to understand how the many social, biological, and technological networks around us determine our life, our daily activity, our health, and so on. What is less known is the fact that before I started to study physics, which I did in Bucharest, Romania, I grew up in Transylvania and my first love was really art and I was preparing to be an artist, a sculptor to be more precise. But the reality of the communist Romania was that it was virtually impossible for me to pursue university education in sculpting. So I ended up following my second love, which was theoretical physics. However, during my PhD in Boston, And particularly after that, when I arrived in New York and I worked at IBM as a researcher, I really encountered networks for the first time. And I started a research program that still runs today of trying to understand, map out these various complex networks around us. Why I was doing that, I also took advantage of one of the perks offered by the universities where I was teaching that I could take classes. So I was studying networks, I was researching networks, and I was taking in parallel the art curriculum to university. And around 1999-2000, the two things started to merge, and I started to use the ideas and the forms of representation that I was learning in the arts classes 
to bring it back to the way we understand, visualize, and conceptualize networks. This is a journey that lasted through the last 20 years, and it was only a few years ago that the art community started to pay attention to this work, and museums and galleries started to ask some of our work. And in the last few years, that has really transformed and became a very important part of my lab's activity. And you mentioned the lab activity. You actually have a namesake lab called Barabashi Lab. Can you just tell me a little bit more about what goes on there day to day? Like how much of the work you do is actually related to the art world versus sort of art-informed ways of approaching other networks? The lab is based in Boston. And we have about 30 researchers mainly who are focused on mapping out various type of complex networks from biological to social networks, lately work on fake news as well and other aspects of network science. And we have an increasing percentage of designers as well. We have had designers for more than 10 years in the lab and currently we have about three and about five to 10 people in the lab are involved in a way or the other, the art component of the work by preparing data, by being involved in visualization and so on. What is interesting about the Barabashi lab is that we have in the same place the fundamental research about trying to understand these complex systems as well as the way to depict it and the way to really bring it to life. So for us, art is really part of our journey of discovery, and it's not a separate enterprise. And what I like to call is what we do is an inverse appropriation, which means that it's very common in the art that artists borrow ideas and concepts and forms from science and bringing back to the artistic practice. In our case, this happens the other way around. We borrow forms of representations, materials, ideas from the art space and bring it back to our daily journey to understand complexity. Right. Well, this is definitely an opportune time to be studying complexity, I feel like. So I'm sure that you have your hands full day to day. Oh, yes. And this is really the right time because in a way, when I wrote my first book about networks 20 years ago, called Linked. It was a book that really brought to many people the idea of a network and connectedness. Today, everybody's aware that we live in the network and we cannot really do anything in our life from our personal lives to professional lives without relying on others. And so networks came of age. But what was interesting is that in parallel for us to developing the science of networks and the narrative of the networks and the data science of networks, we were also perfecting in the last 20 years what I would call the visual language of networks. Because I'm personally a very visual thinker. In order for me to understand the system, I need to see it. I need to have it somewhat represented in a way to bring out the essence of the system. And this was this desire that kind of met with my interest in the art space to really kind of create this body of work that is quite extensive right now. As we speak, we have a big exhibit at Zeekheim in Karlsruhe that is a kind of an overview of what we did in the last 20 years that was shown at the Ludwig Museum. And one of the emphasis of the exhibit is how did the language of representing networks has really evolved in the last 20 years in parallel with the science of networks as well as awareness of networks in the general population. Right. And that seems really important to me, especially when we start talking about 
technologically based concepts like crypto networks, because as you're saying, the complexity of these things just very rapidly gets to a level of extremity where you can kind of no longer visualize what's happening just in your head from reading words about it or hearing words about it. And so having some kind of very artistically informed, thoughtful manifestations of it in visual form seems like it's almost essential to really understanding even the basics of what's happening. Oh, it is totally unavoidable. You know, like our cognition is really very, very deeply depends on our ability to see things. And this is one of the big uh, kind of problems in the contemporary science, starting from quantum mechanics all the way, say, to network science, is that the concepts that we're dealing with are deeply mathematical, but they do matter to our life. And they don't lend naturally themselves to visual representation. We need to kind of use other parts of our intellect to decode it. So this is really what the journey has been for us, is to make the invisible visible. And of course, representing these systems for the art space, for the science space, is always a form of storytelling, which is no different from what happened in the classical art, whether it was a story of the ruling class or whether it was the story of the religious setup. And what we have now as a practice in our lab is to really do storytelling about the science using the tools of art and their modes of representation of art. And I guess that's sort of a natural segue to, I assume, how you got interested in the crypto space, because in theory, one of the great bonuses of having everything publicly visible on the blockchain is that it should, in theory, be easy to understand the way things work. But as somebody who has gotten onto Etherscan, which for people who don't know is essentially a online tool that allows you to sort of go through entries on the Ethereum blockchain and sort of see how things are moving or how things are being traded, it's not an easy experience for the average person to be able to just do that and be able to understand what's happening. So I'm assuming that that's how you got interested in the idea of working with crypto, but you tell me. Well, the motivation goes a little further back. So one of the practice of my lab, and particularly in the art space, is to use data to represent art as well, and to use data to really ask deep and often not comfortable questions about the artwork itself. So in 2018, we published a major research paper where we mapped out the exhibition history of about half a million artists. And we asked the question, what is really responsible for artistic success? That is, you know, how do the institutions contribute to the success of some artists and hold other artists back? And depending on where you start your career and what galleries, what institutions you work in, how does it predestinate to success or lack of success in the art space? And that was one of our first journey into the art space. And since then, we have a practice of trying to use data to really show a data-driven mirror of the art space, or in other way, put it, to offer a data-driven critique of the art space. So... When NFTs came around, it was fabulous for us because for the first time, we were able to see an art market born from nowhere that, as we see during the discussion, behaves like the classical art market, but 
every single move is public. And why is that important? Because one of the biggest problems from a data-driven perspective when we study the art is that art is not a data-rich community. That is, where it's very secretive about primary sales. It's almost impossible to find information about what does a work cost in the gallery at the large scale. And while there is secondary market data, auction data, and so on, and ArtNet is kind of collecting much of that data, and so do many other data sources, generally, it's very difficult to use data to explore art in general. And this is very different from other areas that we've been dealing with. We studied a lot scientific success, where virtually every single publication from 1900 to today is available to us to study the authors, where they worked, and so on. This would be equivalent as if in the art space, you would have every single artist, every single work documented where they are, where they were born, when were they born, who owns them right now, how much did they pay for it. But that is virtually impossible to obtain in the classical art space. However, in the NFT space, that is precisely the type of information we can get. We can see when the work has been born. We can see when it was sold, how much they pay for it. We can see when it was resold. We can understand the role of the platforms, which is given to the galleries. That is the role of the institutions. We can look at artistic reputation. We can look at virtually every aspect of the artwork as it unfolds in front of our eyes. Right. And it seems like an essential part of that, at least to my ears, is the idea that you can see it all from the beginning. There's more and more information out there available about the art market going forward. But for instance, our price database at Artnet only really goes back to the late 80s, early 90s. So everything that happened before then, there's basically just no real way of verifying it in a way that we can trust. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what, as you put it, that you and others actually have very detailed information going back 1990s, 1980s. But I do want to mention that that data is proprietary data, and it's not available for researchers like us for study. So in order for a data-driven practice of looking at the art to develop, there has to be publicly available data sets that would attract many scientists like myself and really to focus on this area. And this is what happened about 10 years ago when it came to science. Previously, all the data sets were hidden behind paywalls. And about a decade ago, the publicly available data sets started to emerge and has led to an explosion that we call science of science. What we're lacking is a science of art. But I personally believe that it is born today. We are in the process of giving birth to that we and many others who in the last kind of few years started to use big data driven tools to collect data about artistic practices and to analyze that and provide this data driven perspective of the art world. Right. And so if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that we have this opportunity to really study the NFT market from the very outset. And Barabashi Lab is going to be there to really say, let's do this right, and let's do it right away. This is exactly how I feel about it. And when we want to go after that, we are interested as a scientific question to really create a science of art. But given my 
previous training, I'm also interested as a fundamental question of art practice. That is that how we can bring this data back to the art space, to the museums and galleries in a way to be interpretable in that context as well. Because the paper we'll be talking today about, it appeared in the scientific journal and very few artists are actually reading that type of journal, even though many of the conclusions we draw from our work have direct importance for artistic careers, artistic success, the institutions and so on. Okay, well, since you mentioned the study itself, this seems like the right time to pivot into what you found. But I want to start here. As most people listening to this podcast know, the NFT market is in large part made up of these different large exchanges or NFT platforms that are out there. And Foundation is one of them, and there are others And one of them was a platform called SuperRare, which you did a study of last year. And I'm curious as to why you looked at SuperRare, came to the conclusions you came to there, and then decided the next one of these that we want to focus on is Foundation. Absolutely. We started with SuperRare because SuperRare was one of the earliest platforms when it comes to NFT sales. And it offered us an opportunity to look at the emergence of the primary and the secondary market. So SuperRare started way earlier than the famous Beeple sale that brought everybody's attention there. So it had already a three-year history on that. And therefore, it had quite enough time history for us to really explore in time how do these evaluations emerge. And what is also special about SuperRare that within the same platform, you have a primary and a secondary market. So it was through SuperRare that we were able to see the first kind of tentative emergence of a market where artists were just selling for a few dollars to each other some of these works. But we could also see there immediately the emergence of a couple of very devoted collectors on the primary market who bought very, very large number of artworks, and there were about a dozen or so. And even more interesting was the emergence of the secondary market, how there was a strong consolidation of a few collectors really starting to buying up on the secondary market works from the other collectors. And the process we saw in SuperRares is very, very similar to what led to the emergence of the gallery system as we have it today, thanks to the fact that the impressionist painters were actually excluded from the academy in France. So they needed an alternative way to reach the market. And in my mind, this is what happened here as well, that there was a crypto art community that was becoming stronger and stronger and worked as a community. And finally, they found a way to kind of get out of obscurity because they were largely ignored by the traditional gallery system. And they used the NFT platform or the crypto platform actually as a way to create their own sales and their own opportunity to exchange works with each other. So the main conclusion that was very surprising to me from that super rare study or very interesting is to see how the same mechanisms, the same collector fever, the same consolidation of the market characterized the emergence of the NFT space early on as we see taking place in the classical marketplace. Okay, so then SuperRare gave you this opportunity to look at both the primary market and the secondary market simultaneously and how they related to one another. 
But that's basically the recap of what you were interested in in Super Rare. So then let's pivot to Foundation. What did Foundation provide you that was different? Foundation was very interesting because it was funded a few months before NFTs exploded. And it was funded to be a place for artists. And what it meant is that while Super Rare has a team of curators and it's very, very difficult to get in an artist, it operates almost like an exclusive gallery in New York that artists have great difficulty getting accepted by the gallery owner. Here, there is a huge line to get in and most artists are locked out. In response to that, Foundation evolved as an open for all market with the exception that artists get to invite other artists to join. So it was the first time when we saw that really it was a community of artists taking in their hands the whole NFT process and using their social network to really spread the platform itself and to attract more and more artists. So that openness offers a better representation of what the NFT community is out there than some of these closed platforms. There's a curational team to let or not let you on. Okay, great. So then... Give me the elevator pitch for the foundation study. Like, what did you set out to do and how did you go about doing it? What we did is that we mapped out the full history of the foundation from its very first work sold on the market all the way till the end of the study, which was kind of towards the middle of last year. The most surprising thing for me is that we saw once again that NFT market is in many ways very similar to the traditional art market. There is an initial indifference. <laughs> then came the exuberance in March. And then there was a settling back to a new steady state where artists continue to consistently produce work. Some of this work sells for quite a high amount, but most works just stays on the platform. And there's not much interest in that. And along the way, a pricing system has emerged on the platform and a reputation-driven pricing has emerged. And so in many ways, within a few short months, Foundation has built up the whole ecosystem that characterizes, say, the New York art scene or any classical art scene. Okay, well, let's just start with this idea of uptake and adoption. You mentioned that in these first few months around Foundation's launch, which was in February of 2021, there was this initial explosion of interest and then a sort of retrenchment and a eventual establishment of a steady state. Like, How fast did that happen? Kind of walk us through that process from a timeline perspective. Absolutely. So as you said, in February 2021, when the platform was formed, and that actually meant that about a dozen artists were joining actually on daily the platform. And then came the people sale in March. And suddenly everybody started to pay attention to NFTs. And that led to an explosion of artists wanting to join the platform. And that was a feverish process. I was one of them, actually. And I know how hard it was to get an invitation to the platform because every artist who is already on the platform and sold some work, they had only a limited number of invitations they could send out. And people would send it mostly to their friends because there were too many requests. And as a result, sometimes the end of March, early April, 
there was an explosion, meaning that about 200, 250 artists per day were joining the platform. And that lasted kind of much of April and then started to decay. And around May, it reached what I would call a new steady state. And the foundation continues to attract new artists, new artwork and so on, but not any longer at the rate that was happening in March, partly because most artists who had interest in the NFT space they successfully joined the platform in that early moment. So when you look at both at the number of artists, both in how many works were actually put for sale, how many works sold, you see a hat-like picture where you start out with the low numbers, it explodes in kind of March and April, and then goes back to a steady state that is characterizing the platform even today. When you say steady state, you don't mean that the platform isn't showing any growth at all anymore. You're just saying that the level of new interest, new adoption on the platform is still growing, but it's just at nowhere near the rate of that kind of initial boom. I'm so glad you clarified that. Absolutely, that's what it means. So why the boom time, about 250 artists were joining on a daily basis, now we're back to like somewhere between 50 to 100 artists joining on a daily basis. The platform continues to grow, continues to attract new artists. New work is being put out there by the existing artists and by the new artists. It's just that the growth is not as explosive as it was in the early stage. And part of that initial boom phase seems like it ties into something that we've seen elsewhere in the crypto space overall, which is this idea of a first mover advantage. So in other contexts, like if you bought Bitcoin or Ether very early on, you held on to it, you got outsized rewards in comparison to somebody who is only trying to buy their first cryptocurrencies now. Did you see that same kind of first mover advantage for the artists on the platform? Did they benefit in an outsized way in comparison to the people who joined later? Oh, absolutely. And many, many different ways. So today's well-known artists on the platform are typically those who joined early. There are exceptions, but the first mover advantage is, is hugely there, both in terms of how much they can ask for their work how much money they accumulated altogether, as well as what's the likelihood for their work to sell. So what is interesting is that if you were among the early adopters of the platform, in the first few months, virtually all of your work got sold out. That has changed right now. So what the new steady state means is that uh, while early stages, maybe 20% of the work stayed unsold at any moment, now 70 to 80% of the work is being created, but is not finding a buyer. So what happened now is that the NFT art market became very, very similar to the classical art market, where we have a large number of artists who continue to produce work, but they have difficulty finding a collector to collect their work. That doesn't mean that works are not selling. They sell quite a number of them and for quite a high prices, but there is this hierarchy of artists, particularly for some of the early starters, that they continue to put new work out and their work sells very fast. And some of the later arrivers have difficulty attracting bids and attracting collectors. Right. So then in a general sense, what you're saying is that the artists who joined the platform in February or early March, let's say, 
they ended up with this sort of triple advantage where they were able to sell their works for higher prices, they had a much higher likelihood of selling the works at all, and because of those two things, their overall earnings on the platform were all larger than what the equivalents for artists who joined later ended up being. Absolutely. And it, this doesn't mean that you cannot get high values for your art right now if you're a later joiner, but now you have to distinguish yourself with the narrative or with some innovation that really gets you out of the pack, just like in the classical art market. So let's take a step back from this comparison of early adapting artists versus later adapting artists and talk about the idea of the average price of an NFT on foundation overall during this period that you studied. Personally, I would have expected that the average price of an NFT would have fluctuated in response to the amount of artists, the amount of buyers who are joining the platform. But it doesn't seem like that's what you actually found. Just tell me about this story of the average price of an NFT and kind of what happened with it. This was indeed one of the most surprising aspects of the study, at least for me. Because I'm there with you. I really thought when the interest is high, prices explode. When the interest is low, prices plummet. And we know that in the classical market, prices are kept constant artificially by the galleries. But there are no galleries here, so it's totally market-driven. And to our surprise, we found that despite these giant changes in number of sales, of number of new artists joining and so on, there was virtually no change on the average price of the work sold or listed. The average price is somewhere between $1,000 to $10,000, and there are minor fluctuations throughout these many months that we looked at, but there is no trend, no increasing nor decreasing trend, and it does not correlate at all with the activity. So it seems like the way the market has naturally regulated itself is not by adjusting the price, but simply just kind of creating lots of unsold inventory. Got it, got it. Earlier in the podcast, you called Foundation an open platform, meaning that artists don't have to go through an application process to start selling there. All they need is an invitation from another artist who's already on Foundation to be able to get onto it themselves. Now, this seems like a great example of the kind of utopian collectivist rhetoric that you hear a lot of from the pro-crypto crowd. But in terms of an artist's overall odds of success on foundation, are all invitations to join the platform created equal? Not exactly. And let's just talk about the invitation process, right? I'm myself on foundation under the Barabashi Lab artist name. And the reason we got there is because a friend of mine, a fellow artist uh, called Peter Baylor from Budapest has invited us. And if you go to my foundation page, you will actually see Peter Wehler listed as the person who invited me. So it is totally public of who invited whom on the platform. And in many, many cases, this corresponds to personal friendship and offline relationships, like in my case. So therefore, the foundation offered us an opportunity to map out not only the interactions that the artists have with collectors, 
but also the type of social ties that exist between the artists strong enough to invite each other. So we ended up building up this network of who invited whom, and we have a beautiful visualization that shows both how it's evolving in time as well as how it looks like. And what we see is that the network is broken into multiple clusters that kind of describes of who is inviting to and how the network actually evolved. For example, the largest cluster has 900 artists, 941 to be precise, and less than 10% of all artists on the platform. And it was initiated by one artist, Serge Posters. And he was the one who listed his first artwork in February 2021, and then immediately invited 10 other artists, which in turn invited about 40 other artists, who then invited about 86 hours, and eventually the cluster has grown to about close to a thousand artists. And this is a very rich cluster in the sense that these artists together have sold more than $1.6 million and about 800 artworks, which means that not all artists actually have sold work, even though they're on the platform. And obviously some of them have sold more than one. What was interesting is when we started to look at the differences between these clusters, we saw that there are what we call rich clusters and poor clusters, which means that some clusters collect artists who consistently sell work for very high price, and others collect artists who consistently sell for low price, which is a little bit kind of a reflection of the real world homophily, right? If you are a successful artist, in New York, with gallery representation, museum exhibits, you tend to hang around with other successful artists. So when it comes to inviting somebody to the platform, you will probably invite your friends who are in the same category where you are. However, if you are a struggling artist too, with very few connections and mostly to kind of other artists who are trying to make it into the art world, most likely you will be invited or you will be inviting other artists who are in the same category where you are. So in general, then, what you found is that artists who joined the platform tended to have similar financial results to the artists that invited them onto the platform in the first place. Absolutely. I want to move now to this idea of follower count, which is another thing that you could measure both within foundation and also on external platforms. And for people who don't know, Foundation, you are allowed to follow artists in the same way that you can follow accounts on Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. So Twitter is particularly interesting because it's really, among social media platforms, kind of the headquarters of crypto fanatics. And this is part of the reason why you see these NFTs that come out of a kind of viral fame achieve really outsized results. So for instance, if you're looking at the famous Nyan Cat GIF, which an NFT of that sold for close to $600,000, that seems to me like the kind of situation where the amount of interest in a thing on Twitter can translate directly to the price that an NFT is selling for. This would all lead me to believe that the number of Twitter followers an artist has would directly impact their sales prices on a platform like Foundation. Was that the case? Or was there something that was even more important? 
So that's very interesting because indeed we started out with the hypothesis that Twitter fame is the one that determines how much money you will earn on the platform. For the reasons that you said, that Twitter was adopted by the NFT community and the crypto community as their medium of communication, together with Discord. Discord is now also very strong, but Twitter is a public platform. So the first question we asked is, to what degree, how many followers an artist has on Twitter really kind of determines the prices of the work that he or she is selling? And the answer is, there is a correlation, but it's a weak one. But there is a much, much stronger correlation between the number of foundation followers, that is how many people follow you on foundation versus the earnings. And the difference is really huge. Uh, The foundation followers are strongly predictive of how much you will earn and the Twitter are just weakly predictive. For example, one of the largest number of foundation followers is indeed Nyan Cat. But there is one person who is just as actually rich in terms of foundation followers, which is Snowden. And they both actually have the two records actually in terms of sales on the foundation platform. So in general, this makes lots of sense, right? Because if you think about the foundation followers are those collectors and other artists who are in the position to buy works from you. And if if you're following other artists on foundation, like I do, for example, every time that artist puts a work out, I get a notification about that. So it is a real market alert to say, hey, your favorite artist, the one that you follow, has a new work. And obviously, the more followers you have, the more people get that particular notice, and the more likely that when the work goes up for sale, then they will come and bid for it. But as a take-home message, what is really important is that a new community has emerged within the platform itself, the foundation, and that is more important than the larger community that exists on Twitter. And just to give listeners a sense of the degree of difference between what a large foundation follower account means for your earnings versus a large Twitter follower account. You mentioned in the paper that if you go from having 100 followers to 1,000 followers on foundation, then you as an artist are likely to experience a tenfold increase in earnings, which is just huge. Absolutely, because one of the things that is interesting is that what we call the number of followers really follow, they don't really change by a factor of two or three. They change by orders of magnitude. And this is a general property of all social media. We call it a scale-free distribution. And this is one of my claim to fame 20 years ago when I discovered this type of distribution in the case of the World Wide Web. And the same narrative was true for the World Wide Web early on as it is true for the NFT space there. And it failed in the same way. What do I mean by that? When the World Wide Web emerged uh, 20-some years ago, everybody thought, finally, we have a medium where everybody's voice could be heard. Because, principally, you can put your content out on the World Wide Web and it will be immediately accessible to everyone. But then when you looked at how many links are pointing to your content, suddenly the same, what we call a scale-free distribution emerged from the World Wide Web that we see in the Twitter or in the Foundation, meaning that the vast majority of web pages had one or two links to them, and a few, like Google and Facebook and so on, had billions of links pointing to them. 
So while the information that you put out is accessible to everyone, very few people can find it because there are so few links pointing to you. And that's what happens in the NFT space as well, that while everybody's work is being shown on the foundation platform and you have the right to put your stuff out if you're part of the community, for most artists, the visibility is very limited. They have one, two, or maybe no followers. And so when they put out the new work, no one notices. This seems like a good opportunity to get back into the discussion about price. We talked earlier about the average price of an NFT just from the full platform view. I want to talk now about this idea of what individual artists' prices are doing, especially because, as you're saying, we are seeing these outsized results for either early movers or artists who were invited on by other artists who are successful. So just on an artist-by-artist basis, what's happening with prices? Do you see them kind of increasing very steadily and predictably like you would in a classical gallery sector model? Or do you see the individual prices swinging up and down with demand much more aggressively? Very good question. So when you look first at the profile of an artist, And that typically lists all the works that he or she sold and how much they sold it for. And there's quite a bit of variability. So, for example, one of the more prominent artists is called Boss Logic. He actually sold her eight work for like $27,000. But then the next one was $18,000, then $14,000, then $11,000, and then $40,000. So there's quite a bit of fluctuations. And then for less prominent artists, the prices can go somewhere from a few hundred dollars to suddenly a few thousand and then back again to a few hundred dollars. So when you look at it, it looks like, oh my goodness, there is no stability here of the prices. And it's just the day's flavor determine how much you will get for your work. But when we look deeper, we realize this is not the case. That for each artist, there is actually a window or a band of prices in which they move. And that band is very, very stable. It's typically of the order of magnitude uh, kind, and it's very difficult for them to move out of that. In other words, a notion of prestige has emerged in the NFT space, in the foundation platform, and that determines the range of fluctuations you see. And if you are in the low range of sales, in a few hundred, you will not see 100,000 sales on your work. You will typically stay in the few hundred ones. For example, one of the artists, his name is Mad Monk, typically sells for a few hundreds. The highest was kind of like $500. If you look at Boss Logic, however, his works never sell under $10,000, but they don't go much over 30,000 either. So it looks like that just like in the classical art space, artists gain reputation and that reputation sets a price range for them. And whenever the work is get put out and it sells, they're very, very narrowly within that price range. Essentially what you're saying is that 
individual artists, wherever they start off selling from a sales price standpoint is more or less where they remain throughout. So you have these price bands, basically, that they stay within. And while there's fluctuation kind of at the lower reaches of a band or the upper reaches of a band, it's more or less staying in the same range. Absolutely. And this is the closest we get to kind of define artistic reputation within this space. Yeah, can you expand more on this idea of reputation? Because it seems like that's really, in the end, the bedrock of what determines success on foundation. Absolutely. And this is actually an issue that we've been studying a lot in the past, right? Because art is a very interesting space in the sense that what is an artwork really and how much should it be worth? Uh, let me propose an experiment. If you would go ahead and show lots of NFTs randomly to people and ask them to price it, unless they're familiar with the NFT space and they know the artist, they would have no way of deciding who is a prominent artist and who is a non-prominent artist. And this is the same true, actually, in the case of the classical art space. Unless you know the artist, you have no idea how much is their work just by looking at the work itself. So if we cannot objectively look at the work and decide on the price, where does value emerge in the art space? And I believe that value emerges through networks, through institutions that canonize an artist's work, and they help set the price. And this is what we've shown in 2018 in the classical art space, that what institutions you were exhibited in uniquely determined not only your current price, but also your future price. That is, if you tell me your first five exhibits that you had, I can tell you 20 years into the future how much your work will actually be selling. It's totally deterministic. So what happens here in the NFT space is very similar to the classical art space, that there is an artistic reputation kind of that emerges through effectively previous sales and through association with the wall community. And it's very difficult to put your finger on it. Typically, you can measure it based on, in the classical art space, where do you get to exhibit? Are you in MoMA or are you in an unknown museum or what gallery presents you? And in the NFT space, the only thing that we can actually use to measure reputation is the price as well as your likelihood of selling your work. And that's what we do over here. We're using price as well as likelihood to sell your work to really kind of establish whether you are a high reputation artist or your reputation artist, low reputation artist. And what we are finding is that that type of reputation measures are very stable in time. That is that they really don't fluctuate too much and that once you establish a reputation or a price range for your work, then the community will continue to respect that. Oh, that's fascinating. And can you just put that in the context of what we talked about earlier in terms of the price impact of developing more and more foundation followers? Because it seems on the one hand, like that almost contradicts what you just said, because if you're able to get more and more foundation followers over time, your earnings are going to go up. And that is almost like a Calvinist sort of <laughs> mechanism where like wherever you start off on the platform is where you're going to end on the platform. Well, it's a very good question, right? Because it feels like a chicken or egg problem, right? That what comes first, the followers or the reputation? And the reason why it's difficult to wrap our mind around that is that they come together, right? 
and it develops very, very fast, particularly at this particular time scale that we're looking at. And it's very difficult to piece the part or almost impossible at this stage in a sense that we call in a causality way that to say, many followers will lead to high prices or high prices lead to many followers. They're very, very embedded. And, you know, let's just take, for example, the case of Snowden. Snowden is a person whose reputation is in a totally different space, right? But in the moment he decided to put an NFT out, his reputation brought lots of followers to the platform and also led to very high price for the work that he put out. So they're deeply embedded, but the reason why in his case they're embedded because he was bringing a follower base from his previous life into this new life, which is kind of as an NFT artist. And so we probably want to distinguish between artists who do like Snowden, that they have a reputation somewhere else and then suddenly bring it on the platform and emerges from one day to the other to artists who really build their reputation up over here on this particular platform. And what is interesting is that we see that reputation forms very fast and then it stays constant. But this is no different from what we have seen in the classical art space. One of the biggest discovery we had when we analyzed the career of half a million artists is that where you start in terms of reputation, what institutions you exhibit in the first five cases of your exhibitions, totally determine the rest of your career. And this is what we see over here as well. Artists come in and they suddenly come in with a high reputation because they're bringing some existing name recognition from some other platform on that, or they start little, or they start in the middle, or they bring an aesthetics that is very interesting. They can build up a story within that space that is very interesting. And that sets pretty much the price range and they had great difficulty getting out of that price range for their subsequent career. Got it. Well, that seems fascinating and also kind of discouraging at the same time. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, um, but it's it's a hell of a lot more than we knew before. <laughs> it is, and that was the reason why in the classical artwork, for example, we said, are there examples of artists who really start low and make it high? And there are, we found about 250 artists who had that characteristic that they started at the bottom 10% and moved up in prestige to the top 10, 20%. And there were some interesting characteristics for those artists that, that we learned that well, what was characterizing them is early on a constant search. Like instead of kind of staying with the gallery to represent them and show their work over and over, they really exploded very widely, very early on, exhibiting in different markets, in different type of venues and so on. And along this very feverish search, they hit across one or two spaces that had high enough reputation, typically undone to them, to propel them into some degree of artistic stardom. But for most of the artists, wherever they started, they actually kind of stayed there. And that is why it's so difficult to move up from the top, because the top is already busy with managing these artists who really started their career very high. And therefore, somebody who is starting from the bottom has to compete with them to find air, actually, so that his or her work can be shown. So you're saying it's not impossible. There are always ways that you can find to chart a new path to success, but there are also factors that are sort of at least strongly determinative that are there already to start with. 
And I would say one more thing, Tim, is that if you understand these mechanics, which is what we're unveiling in previous study and here, I really believe that you're in much better position as an artist to really take advantage of these platforms, platform being an NFT platform or the gallery system, and to succeed as an artist. In the same way that you cannot build a rocket without knowing the Newton's laws and taking advantage of them, you will not easily succeed unless you have either a natural sense or a detailed understanding of these forces that determine who is successful in this art space, be that NFT or classical art world. Well, I think you've given us a lot to think about today, Laszlo. Before we go, can I just ask you two quick questions? Number one, what are you working on next? And where can listeners find you online if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing? We are heavily continuing uh, the work on trying to use data to understand the art space. And this fall, we will have an exhibit in New York City at Postmasters Gallery, where we will exhibit quite a number of works that use data to look at the art space. And that is to show a data-driven mirror to the art. Along those lines, one of the most exciting projects we're doing, we mapped out all the so-called 990 forms from IRS, which is the kind of the tax authority in the U.S., for all nonprofit organizations, that is all museums and nonprofit galleries, to understand what is their leadership and where do they get their money and what do they spend on. Because these 990 forms are public for all nonprofits, so we can precisely trace the money that comes towards art. So we will have a couple of works in New York in the fall at Postmasters detailing of what, who and what fuels actually the art market, where the money is coming from. We are continuing to be very interested in gender as well. So we have a paper that we're finishing up now on what are the gender components of success in the art space and how male or female genders affect your likelihood of success in this space. And I think that will be also very unexpected results when it starts coming out. Fantastic. And then where can people find you online? So we have the barabashilab.com site, which is our website and soon to be revamped to actually include some of the artwork as well. If you are in Europe, go to Karshuhezekam. Our exhibit is up till uh, end of March, early April, so you may still be able to catch it. And in general, we are on Twitter and we are also on Instagram. So if you search for my last name, Barabashi, you will find us there. And we're delighted to engage with the community that Artnet is actually reaching in a more meaningful way. Well, you heard that, listeners. You can go out and follow Laszlo and Barabashi Lab on Twitter. Just know that the number of followers that he gets there is not really going to do much to impact his sales results on Foundation. (laughs) Uh, Laszlo, thanks so much for walking us through the study. Again, it's fascinating work, and I'm really looking forward to what you do next. Tim, it was such a pleasure to talk about this work and talk with you. So thanks for picking this up and bringing it to the artwork's attention. My pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.